There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. engine light on take the guesswork out of your check engine light with o'reilly veriscan it's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASC certified master technicians and if you need help we can recommend a shop for you ask for o'reilly veriscan today oh, 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 O'Reilly. auto parts Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 124. Today in the show, we're joined by John Janine, and we're diving deep into the topic of blood tracking and recovering a hit whitetail. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today in the show, we are diving very deep into the process of properly blood trailing and tracking a hit deer. And surprisingly, this is something we never really talked about a whole lot on the show to this point. And it's a big, I don't know, mistake on my part, I suppose, because this is such an important topic. I mean, we do all this work to put ourselves into a position to get a shot at deer, but then once we do, well... You know, the work usually is not nearly over. Being smart about how we track and trail those deer after the shot, it's so important, and in a lot of cases, it's a significant challenge. So today, we are bringing on one of the absolute foremost experts on this topic, John Janine. And John is an author of two books on this topic. He's a renowned breeder and handler of tracking dogs. He's been on over 1,000 tracking jobs, and he was inducted into the 2012 no, sorry, in 2012, he was inducted into the New York State Outdoorsman Hall of Fame. So, quite simply, we are in for a serious treat today. But before we get to the main event, we've got a little sideshow for you, as usual, my co-host. <laughs> you know? That's exactly what it is. Right <laughs> yeah. next to the, the bearded woman. Yeah, this is, this is the, the mini circus that's going to happen here for a second. Me and Dan <laughs> do have a few updates for you. So, if you'll bear with us, Dan... What's going on? Let me count how many times I've hunted since the last time we talked. Oh, that's right. Zero. Oh. I I have been into in the stand zero times since uh, the last podcast, since uh, actually since last Saturday night. So I'm not talking about this past Saturday. I'm talking about two Saturdays ago. So it's been uh, not uh, – 
not what I kind of uh, was hoping for. <laughs> so, so uh, now I have some assumptions, but I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. Why haven't you been hunting? All right. So let's see here. Obviously, work. Um, obviously, kids. Right. But my wife had to do something. She she every year. Um, it's different times of the year she does this thing where she goes to something called a, a a mommy market and she like sells all the kids used clothes and some of her uh goods that she makes and um and you know tries to hack it this time it happened on saturday this last saturday and uh and then i had some some family stuff i had to do with my stepmom's burial uh and then I had a wedding on Sunday night, so it was, and then, you know, that brings us to right here because I didn't hunt uh, Sunday. I wasn't able to hunt Sunday night. I uh, wasn't able to hunt uh, last night, and here we are talking about hunting, and I haven't hunted. You sound so glum right now. I, I'm kind of glum, man. You sound really I glum. Missed, I missed, uh, I missed uh, a, a really a pretty decent cold front come through. I know. Um, you know, a lot of those guys are talking about the October lull that's supposedly going on right now. Uh, I got a trail camera that is uh, on that food plot that I planted, mm -hmm. and the deer are on it every day. Now, there's even during daylight. So there's not necessarily any mature buck sightings yet, minus one. Uh, there's been a three-year-old that's been visiting it, but there's been daylight deer movement. And that's uh, a positive. So yeah, yeah. what's yeah. Uh, what's the, the the next hunt on the horizon? Do you have? I mean, there's another cold front pushing through in the next few right. days. Are you going to be able to catch that one? Yeah, Friday this weekend for sure. I'm going to be able to hunt. Um, Friday night we got a southwest wind. I'm kind of debating on two different stand locations. One is going to be a, a run and gun, actually. It's going to be a run and gun on public property. Nice. Uh, the other one that borders a property that I can hunt. And then the other one is going to be going uh, down to my main farm and trying to connect with some of the deer <laughs> that I saw. I, I put a trail camera on this fence line by where the all these deer were piling out um, the previous weekend. So like two weekends ago on that Friday night where I said I saw that shooter, mm -hmm. but he was down the fence line. Right. Uh, try to connect with that and kind of see what that's what's going on there and uh you know just try to get back into the swing of things check some trail cameras see see where the signs kind of popping up and uh you know play it by ear hopefully i'll be able to hunt a couple times throughout next week as well and and really start trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together nice well if you had to miss some time to hunt you know this past week and a half was probably not the worst time to do it as right. we're you know, it's hopefully just going to be ramping up and getting better from here. Right. Um, I did have a few kind of exciting hunts since we last chatted. Um, I know I saw some I saw some trail cam pictures, man. Looks yeah. like uh, Michigan's not the uh, small buck state anymore. Well, it's not the big buck state either, but uh, it's decent. Um, the medium buck state. The medium buck state, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I can't remember if last time we chatted if I had seen Holyfield yet or not, but Tuesday night, I think we recorded last Tuesday. Yep. So that evening after we got done recording, I checked out this little spot where I can see Holyfield from the road sometimes. And lo and behold, right last light, bam, there he was. 
And so I saw him, but he was just, he, there's this little patch of cover that I told you about that he sometimes right. beds in and he just popped out of that piece of cover and it's, it's in, you know, easy sight from the road. You can see this cover. It's not that far from the road, but he beds in this little patch up close. It's kind of weird. And I saw him and this is like right at the end of being able to see with my binoculars. And he walks out in front of my food plot and I've got that screen of cover around it, that sorghum and Egyptian wheat. And yep. he walked on the outside of that. So not in my food plot, not where I would be able to see him if I was hunting, but on the outside of it and paralleled it all the way around to the outside for maybe 50, 60 yards. And then he actually started bumping a doe. Um, yep. And then he disappeared. It got too dark. That's all I saw. Nice. Well, fast forward a couple days. And as we talked about last time, my plan was to stay off this farm, not hunt it until later in the year. So I was sticking with that. We had a little bit of a cold front hit, like you said last week. So I've got a couple different properties I'm hunting this year um, that are new. So I headed to one of those Thursday evening and did a running gun set. And I screwed up. Um, I had looked at the maps. I'd never hunted here before, but I looked at the maps and I saw all right, this big block of timber. There's a swamp over here and there's an intersection of a standing bean field and a standing cornfield. And this big timber, I thought, okay, there's probably some oaks in there. And then I've got the standing beans and the standing corn. And from what I've been seeing right now, the deer are either hitting the mast, you know, acorns, or they're hitting the beans really hard everywhere I've been seeing them. Yeah. So I thought to myself, okay, this could be a great spot where all this stuff comes together. And what was really nice about it is since I, since I never hunted here, I kind of wanted to hunt just an observation stand, somewhere I could just see a long ways and learn. And I had a west-northwest wind, and there was a house on the edge of this property, and I could hunt where this hole or all the stuff kind of intersects was like really close to this house and yard. So I was like, I can sneak through this backyard and my wind will blow right into their backyard. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to spook any deer probably. And I can get set up right here and at least be in a spot that hypothetically looks pretty decent and it's right. super safe to get into. And I can just watch and learn something tonight. So I sneak in there with my stand. I'm going to do that. And then I just start like second guessing everything. I'm like, well, I am really close to this house and man, that corner way down there closer to the swamp does look really good. And there's a big oak tree down there. And long story short, I second guessed myself out of my initial gut instinct. I set a stand about a hundred yards, maybe 80 yards farther down the line than I originally planned on. And about 20 minutes before last light, a big mature eight pointer steps out of that standing corn walks right down the edge past where I was going to hunt and steps into the timber right where I should have been sitting. And I had to watch all this. I do that every year, man. <laughs> I, every year I will try to talk myself in or out of a different position when, you know, you go into the timber after all day, you know, I look at Google maps and, you know, probably what you did. Okay. Here's my access. Here's my wind direction. You get there and you're like, wow, man, that over there looks just as juicy as this place. But I think the big buck's going to step out down there and exactly what happened happened. Mm -hmm. It's painful. And then as yeah. you, as you know, it, it gets worse while I'm hunting there that night. Not only do I see this big buck step out out of range where I should have been, but then I get a text message from my trail camera on my main Michigan farm <laughs> and Holyfield is standing in front of my tree stand in broad daylight for 20 minutes. Nice. nice. So there's that. So then the next day I said, well, screw it. I've gotten two daylight, you know, confirmation of daylight activity from Holyfield Tuesday night and Thursday night. So it's like, I got to hunt there Friday. Like right. he's a daylight walker. I got to try. And there's only one spot I could hunt with a wind I had. 
So I snuck in there. I actually had my wife bring the ATV and drive me down this field to get me in here because I've been trying all these different access routes to get in there, and I still, you know, I'm not seeing him. So I'm like, okay, maybe even though I'm doing all these crazy things, maybe that's still not good enough. So I was like, well, let's try this. Because um, there had been all sorts of farm equipment around there in the couple days beforehand. They'd been picking the beans. So yep. I thought, okay, you know, hopefully I, he'll just think this is another farmhand or whatever. Drop me off, and then she drove off away. And um, that didn't work either. I didn't see him. Right. So that was that. And that's all the hunting I've done since. I have, like you said, got some good trail camera pictures. I had those daylight pictures of Holyfield. And then two nights later, I had that nine-pointer show up. Um, he's a three-year-old, I think, is my best guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of don't really want to shoot him. Um, Holyfield's really the one I'm after. But uh, that's that. And then I got some great pictures in Ohio. There's some nice big bucks down there. Blades is a buck that I've been hunting for three years. He showed back up. Boss is a big eight-pointer that's here for the second year. And then one of the eight-pointers that we saw this summer, he's been showing up. But everything's dark still. Everything's at night. Nice. So, nice. um that's kind of where things stand. I'm waiting until some daylight activity happens down there, or maybe maybe I'll head down when that cold front hits in about a week or 10 days down there. So Nice. Nice. Well, it's getting to that time of year where, I mean, things are going to start, slowly start uh, ramping up. I got guys telling me, you know, that uh, I shared a, a post today about, uh, you know, the, the rut this year is supposed to be from the 8th to the 20th like that's going to be the peak rut well um, according well, to charles elsheimer right exactly exactly the the guy who makes the predictions right moon, so then moon we theory yeah the moon theory yeah so then we got uh, other guys who have been doing a lot of hunting telling me he, they feel it's going to be early because they're seeing a lot of deer a lot of bucks pushing does already not necessarily chasing them but you know sniffing bumping them you know exactly what holyfield did to the the doe that you saw and so, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, what, what we, we, we just have a couple of seconds here. But, I mean, do you – we talked about this last year, but we haven't really circled back on it a year later. Do you put much credit into that whole moon theory when it comes to the, to the rut? Uh, no, not really. Okay. This is – I mean, I, I, I really can't because if I'm going to justify – if I'm going to justify my decision of time off of work – based off the moon theory and if a a hot you know let's say that moon that moon theory holds true but the weather is really really hot like i think like me and you've talked about we're going to try to hunt the cold weather as opposed to you know the best moon phase on hot weather right yeah so i just it i don't know i can't i can't fall real in line with it the rut happens when the rut happens and you're going to – that time of year, your best bet is just to be in a tree stand as much as you can. Very true. Very true. And um, I, I agree with you 100%. I think weather – and like yeah. you said, we've talked about this a lot. Weather always trumps the moon. They're, they're, I'm, still, I'm still a semi-believer slash tester of the theory when it comes to some of these other moon theories, you know, whether it be yeah. the moon overhead, underfoot, or the rising setting moon and how that might, you know, kind of right. enhance – some of that movement a little bit. Um, right. I think there might be something to that. I'm still, you know, we're still intrigued by it. But um, right. when it comes to the timing of actual breeding, like it seems pretty darn set in stone that at least in the northern half of the country, that's very consistent year in and year out due to right. photo period. So, yeah, I'm just like you. I, 
Yeah, I'm going to hunt every day I possibly can during the rut, but if I were planning my vacation, if I had the flexibility, I'd try to wait and see what the weather forecast was right. and try to time it with that. And then if not, you know, if you're looking for something that could sway you a little bit, you know, you could look at that moon stuff and research that. But um, getting a trip. I, I already have the 7th, see the 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, and 11th scheduled to be off work. Now, those other days, those other five days that I'm dedicating to taking time off could be potentially be before that. So like a Thursday, Friday or a, a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Um, and then, and then take off the Monday and Tuesday of the following, the following, following week. You know what I mean? So yeah. I'm not getting, uh, you know, three weekends in a row, which would be optimal, but I might be catching that peak breeding a little bit more. Right. Or that peak rut activity. Yeah. 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 So, and I've never really, whenever I've taken my, my time off, it's always been the first you know, the first two weeks in November when I think as I'm starting to get older, man, I don't know. I think maybe that third week is going to be just as good as opposed to the, the first week. I think so, huh? I, yeah, I don't know. I've always been a big believer in that first two weeks too. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, for some guys, there's a lot of states that have their firearm season open up in mid-November. Oh, yeah. Like in Michigan, yeah. our season opens November 15th. So basically, you need to get it done those first two weeks. Right. Um or it's, you know, kind of chaos after that. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, man. I'm excited about the rut. I'm excited for uh, for you to get out and do some hunting, too. I need some good stories. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm ready to spend some time in a tree. I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, how about this? Let's take a break now for a quick word from our sponsors at Sitka Gear. And then we're going to give John a call. And he's going to give you, Dan, some advice for how to track that big old buck you're going to shoot here soon. Right. Well, I'm going to shoot him right through the heart, so it's really not going to – I don't need really his tips at all. But uh, <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I hope that's the case. But yeah, in the, knock on wood. In the <laughs> off chance that doesn't work out for you, Dan, we're going to talk to John. Right, right. All right. Well, with that said, we do want to thank our partners at Sitka Gear for their support of this podcast. And today, we're bringing you a quick Sitka story from Wade James a Sitka whitetail ambassador, professional photographer, and videographer, and the editor of our 2015 and 16 Wired to Hunt webisodes. And Wade has had an incredible 2016 season already, and it was capped off just recently with a successful hunt that occurred under some unusual and memorable circumstances. Wade, you just killed an awesome buck in Pennsylvania, but some people are popularly referring to it now as the PP tree buck. Why is that? <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a funny story. When we were hanging the set for the stand, I knew the area I wanted to get a stand up in, and I took my four-year-old daughter with me. And while I was up there climbing and hanging the stand, she was messing around on the bottom few steps of the, uh, of the screwing steps that I had, and she ended up slipping off and hitting herself in the crotchal region and getting scared. So I climbed down to make sure she was okay, and... After we were done hanging the set, I kind of asked her, you know, what should we name that tree stand that you picked out? And she said, we should name it the PP tree, Dad. So <laughs> I just laughed about it, and it kind of stuck. So we kept it with the PP tree. <laughs> now, fast forward a little <laughs> bit later into this fall, something good happened there. Can you tell me about how everything came together? Yeah, I, I knew that this spot needed a, a 
the right wind, obviously, and I had uh, the first frost of the year coming with the, re- the wind that I needed for that stand. So I picked my daughter up that helped me hang the stand, I picked her up from preschool, and asked her what tree should daddy go in tonight, and she said the pee-pee tree. So I kind of scurried out to my lease, got up in the stand, and ended up shooting one of my nicest bucks out of that spot. Uh, I heard a grunt across the creek. I hit the grunt tube twice, and I heard the deer splash across and hit it two more times, two soft grunts, and I had two does, two button bucks, and then this buck come filtering up through seven yards uh, right in my shooting lane, stopped it, shot it, and it ran about 50 yards and died. So just it's crazy that my four-year-old picked out the tree that I was going to kill my buck in this year. (laughs) You just never know where that great hunting advice might come from. But what I do know is that this was a Sitka story, as Wade was wearing a Sitka Fanatic hoodie and jacket and the Fanatic light bibs. So if you'd like to learn more about Sitka gear for yourself, you can visit sitkagear.com. And now, back to the show. All right, with us on the line now is John Janene. Welcome to the show, John. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, we appreciate you taking the time to do this. And I got I to gotta tell you, when I originally had the idea to talk about this topic of tracking and blood trailing and recovering deer, I asked a handful of people that I really respect. And everybody pointed me to you as the person that I needed to talk to. So both I and Dan, and I think all of our listeners, are excited to, to hear some of your expertise and your experiences when it comes to recovering deer. And I suppose before we get into all that, could you just share with us a little bit of your background, you know, how you came to have so much experience when it comes to this type of thing? Well, it really starts when I wounded a deer myself. And uh, I was very upset about it. Uh, a twig hit my shotgun slug. And uh, I spent a whole day looking. There was no blood. And... Uh, uh, a week later, some other hunters found the uh, deer in a swale 300 yards away. And uh, at this time, I realized that uh, if I had had a good tracking dog, the type that they use in Europe, uh, this wouldn't have happened. And I had learned about uh, uh, tracking dogs in Europe. I was doing some research at the French National Forestry School, and uh I made a number of German uh, friends there. They were uh, German exchange students. And uh, they introduced me to tracking dogs in uh, Germany and wire-haired dachshunds. Already, I I came home from that uh, research year uh, with my first uh, uh, dachshund. And, uh, of course, the problem at that time was that using a tracking Using a dog in any form in deer hunting uh, was illegal. Uh, And that was not just my state of New York State, but uh, uh, pretty much over the the whole uh, Northeast and Midwest, uh, the the South was different. We don't have to get into that now. Uh, So I applied to our conservation department for a uh, research permit to see if uh, this would work over here. After a lot of talking, I got that permit and began to take uh, calls for hunters uh, who couldn't find their deer. And my luck was I had an amazingly good dog, and uh, we were very successful. 
So that's the way it got started. And uh, so uh, uh, the research permit was expanded to uh, uh, other people who were interested in tracking dogs. And then uh, finally, the whole procedure was legalized in 1988. It had started in 1976. So this is a long way off, a long way back. Uh, but uh, uh, anyway, for the next 40 years, I'm uh, 81 now, uh, I was tracking uh, with some very smart dogs who taught me a lot because a dog doesn't, uh, a so-called blood tracking dog doesn't need blood tra to track. They follow the individual scent of the deer. We can go into that later if it's necessary. Uh, and it was possible to see what wounded deer do when they're hit and when they go uh, farther uh, than uh, hunters ordinar ordinarily able to track. And I ended up taking over, well, actually exactly 1,108 uh, calls. And my dogs taught me a lot. I really owe it to the dog. I, I ended up, you know, with a pretty good idea of uh, how to uh, evaluate a hit. I wrote a book on that and uh, how to track them when there's no blood to track with. And I wrote a book on that, Tracking Dogs for Finding Wounded Deer. And uh, I've had a wonderful time with this. Uh, you know, I think it's important for ethical and conservation reasons, but tracking with a dog working in partnership with a dog on a difficult task is uh, an extraordinary experience in itself. You know, it helps you to be a, a little bit of, uh, of a dog yourself. <laughs> and uh, this has been my passion. Now, like you mentioned a second ago, so you've written a book on how to use dogs to help find deer and then also what you've learned from your dogs, you know, that you've now applied in another book about just generally how to go yeah. about this whole process of, of finding. That one was called dead on. Yeah. Dead on. So, so kind of what I wanted to do here was kind of frame our conversation around both of those two topics, maybe start with some of the things that we can do without a dog. And then eventually we can also talk about what you could do if, or how to find someone who has a dog or what to do if you had a dog or all those different things. So, so maybe can we start from the beginning, John, let's say sure. I'm a hunter and I've just shot a deer with, let's say I'm, I'm bow hunting. I've just shot a deer. What are some of the things that we as a hunter should be thinking about immediately at that point? As soon as that arrow hits the deer, what are the, some of the things that we should be thinking about to help make sure we can get that proper recovery? Okay, first, I think you should try to get as uh, good a, a memory of the hit site, where the arrow entered the deer, if that's possible. Then you have to decide what your tactics are going to be for finding that deer. The, the deer may go uh, 50 yards and collapse, and that's the most likely uh, scenario, and, you know, that's great. But if you don't... Um, actually see the deer go down, I think it's a good idea to get down fairly quickly and go to the hit site and uh, evaluate it. And depending on what you see, you can decide how to handle the uh, situation. I think too many of the writers in the past have tried to deal with uh, uh, wounded deer all in one category. Oh, you always wait. You wait eight hours, you do whatever. And uh, I think that uh, this is oversimplifying the thing. Uh, you, you go to the hit site. Of course, it's great if you can recover your arrow. 
and uh, you smell it. A lot of punters don't do that. Uh, but the, uh, if you smell that arrow, if it's gone a little bit far back uh, into the paunch, you're going to smell kind of a, a cow barn smell. If it's going back a little bit farther, uh, it's going to be deer dropping smell. Uh, and if that's the case, you know you've got the gut shot, and you don't want to uh, uh, get started on this right away. I think the ideal uh, point there is to to back out uh, and wait if the coyotes will let you do it uh, for eight hours, and then go in and track. And by that time, the deer should be dead or uh, very um, much uh, weakened. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, suppose you see bone fragments. Uh, almost always those are from the legs. Now, in cases like that, the old saying, oh, always wait, is all wrong. Because uh, in a case like this, the deer is going to bleed out through the broken bones. But you've got to push the deer to keep it, uh, uh, the blood flowing. If you let the deer bed down and relax, uh, the uh, uh, blood will stop coagulate much sooner. So you've got to make that evaluation. You look uh, for uh, evidence of uh, uh, a chest shot. That's what you want. But my dogs have taught me that uh, a one-lunger uh, is not always fatal. I've learned by talking to medical people that when uh, a lung collapses, the flow of blood uh, to that uh, uh, lung cuts way down. And the uh, deer or the wounded soldier uh, can survive uh, on the other lung. And then very often that uh, that lung actually comes back into function later on. Uh, so here, uh, you know, it's kind of tricky. I think the, the best situation would be wait two hours and then push the deer. You know, we can learn a lot from uh, Army uh, medics when a... Uh, a soldier is wounded, they try to keep him quiet and keep the blood flow down. Uh, they don't let him exercise. So, you know, you have to make all these distinctions, and you make those by evaluating uh, the hit site. And, uh, of course, uh, evaluating uh, the type of hair that you've got uh, is a very important part of this. Now, this is complicated. I don't deal with it in my book because... In different parts of the United States, the hair color and composition is quite different. It depends on the season, too. But evaluating the hair is very important. And uh, you do all these things, and then you decide uh, what your uh, tactic is going to be for finding that deer. Something new that's come in since I started tracking in the Northeast, uh, the coyotes uh, uh, invaded. And now, if you are uh, you leave a, an animal out overnight, uh, where I track, uh, you've got a 30% chance of having it devoured by coyotes. So you've got to balance this uh, uh, into your plan of how to uh, track that deer. It's more complicated than it used to be. Yeah, yeah. So, so step one, we've we've checked out the site. We've 
analyzed the arrow. We've smelled it. We've looked to see if there's hair. Maybe we've checked to see the color of the blood, some things like that, to try to figure out, okay, where did I hit this deer if I don't know for sure? So you said if it's a gut shot or a punch shot, wait at least eight hours. What about a liver shot? Well, usually that goes with a punch shot uh, because uh, the um, the liver lies alongside the stomach. But uh, a, a liver shot uh, is invariably fatal. Uh, the the wounds of the liver doesn't seem to clot up; it continues oozing. Now you can read books that say that a, a liver shot deer uh, will never go uh, more than 400 yards, or whatever. Well, I've I've found them going unpushed uh, over a mile and climbing a hill uh, to bed down and die. But they're going to die. And, uh, you know, uh, I I think on these cases uh, it's better to wait uh, and let that uh, uh, loss of blood, that oozing loss of blood, uh, become fatal. If you push it, the deer is still going to die, but if you... You push it and it stops bleeding, you're in trouble. Yeah. So so that's one of the situations then, along with gut shots, that you recommend not pushing it. But it sounds yeah. like you Usually are... a gut shot and a liver shot are uh, combined. Okay. Because the liver lies right alongside the uh, main paunch, the mm-hmm. main stomach. Yeah. But then for a chest shot, so lungs, heart, you're saying get right after them, which, like you said, is, is a little bit different than what we hear from a lot of people. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think it is. I think you have to move. Uh, when you begin tracking, you uh, track with uh, uh, great caution. And uh, it's nice to have a hunting buddy. One person uh, eye tracks, and the other keeps his uh, eyes uh, out ahead to see if you can get another shot. But a, uh, a deer is more likely to weaken if he's shot in uh, the lungs, and if he's pushed. Now, there are always other things that come into this. You know, you've got property lines and so forth. Uh, and I don't want to confuse people here. Uh, I'm just saying you've got to think out every individual situation uh, and not just go with the uh, old boy's uh, advice, oh, I'll wait until morning. What about body shots? Like if I just get a bad, like a brisket shot in front of the shoulder or a hit in the back leg. I mean, I mean, one of these worst case scenarios where it's a shot that you typically don't think would be fatal. Do you push right after that with the hope of maybe I can keep this deer bleeding? Um, or what are you doing? Yeah, time? with these uh, body shots, there are times when uh, you can get the deer. Uh, you know, there's a big femoral artery that goes down along behind the bone in the hind quarter. If you nick that, you're going to get that deer. But you, it's hard to, it's impossible to tell immediately whether you're just in flesh or you're in that major artery. Same thing with uh, neck shots. I don't like them at all. But if you uh, uh, nick the uh, jugular vein or the carotid artery, uh, that deer is uh, going to die. So you always try. I would never advocate saying, well, there's no point in uh, tracking this deer because there is so many uh, un, uh, unknowns and uncertainties when you evaluate a hit site. Yeah. How do you know when to do that? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give a couple examples. And uh, one was a couple years ago, I shot a doe, and my immediate reaction was dead deer. 
this this dough is toast. Tons of good blood um, for a hundred yards, and I waited. Pro- I waited probably thirty minutes because I felt that you know this dough is going to die, and that one hundred yards right towards the end of it, it started just it it shut off, and then I I went maybe 50, 60 more yards. And I found just a little drop. And then that was it. Um, I, I had gone 200 yards and I started gritting. Um, what, what, what's something that I may have done wrong? Or if you were by my side, what would you have told me to do? No, I think this is a pretty good, uh, uh, tactic that you did. Uh, you may have had, you probably had, you know, just a a flesh wound that would bleed heavily and then uh, uh, clot up. But uh, uh, the next step, you know, when you you run out of blood, if you can call uh, a uh, tracker with a, a trained leash tracking dog, uh, he's going to be able to take that deer a lot farther. And, uh, you know, you may have a pretty good idea of uh, where in the muscle you hit the deer for instance, on a uh, high neck shot or a high shoulder shot, we never get those. But, uh, you know, the, the tracker can help Hunter evaluate the situation if the Hunter gives him the detail. Okay. But I think what you did was fine. If there had been a tracker uh, available and you figured you had a pretty good hit, you could go farther. But a, a deer will bleed very heavily from a flesh wound. But okay. uh, seldom uh, enough to kill them. What about that uh, kind of the no man's land shot that some people talk about? This area um, that's debated, you know, just underneath the spine. Um, some people say that if you hit underneath the spine, there's this area where there's not a lethal hit. It gets above the lungs and all that. Is what have you seen from that type of a situation? Have you are those deer recoverable, or is that uh, not going to die? You know, they're very tough. To, those shots are very tough to evaluate. Uh, generally, if the arrow is uh, enters the deer uh, less than six inches from the top line, as you see it, which includes hair, uh, the chances are poor. But there are exceptions to everything. There's a big artery, the dorsal aorta that runs along right under the spine. And uh, if you clip that, that deer is going to be down in 100 yards. And there's no way that you can tell. And also with those dorsal aorta shots, there's going to be very little bleeding on the outside. Uh, Blood is just going to cascade into the chest cavity. Hmm. It's a tough one. Um, With calls like that, if the arrow is definitely down you know, six inches or more, we take the call. But we know that the chances of getting the deer are not great. Uh, Generally, we found that if you track a deer uh, a half mile and uh, on a chest shot, you know, if it's a chest shot, a high chest shot or whatever, if he goes a half mile, he's probably uh, uh, going to survive because he's got a wound that's, that's going to coagulate and, and uh, uh, you know, clot up and the blood will, will stop. But there's no way of knowing. Uh, one of the great uses of a tracking dog is to determine 
whether the deer is mortally wounded or not. They make a big thing of this in Europe. They call it a control search. But the, you know, but there's no way that you can be sure uh, at the hit site of what you got. And uh, uh, you know, I've, I've tracked a lot of these deer, and the hunter is really grateful when I can show him that his the deer is going to be okay. He just doesn't want that deer to rot in the woods, and I sure respect that. Yeah. What were you going to say, Dan? Well, I was going to kind of go a, a, a little bit of a different direction. I mean, after these deer, and maybe you can, maybe by all these track jobs that you've been on, whether the hunter has a dog or or doesn't have a dog, do deer tend to do the same thing? every time after they're wounded you hear people talk about water you hear people talk about going downhill or they'll they'll never yeah. jump a fence or, or things like that are there any trends that you've noticed that you can share with us that uh, might I'm glad help? you asked that question yeah. no I, I don't think that there are trends when a deer is wounded he goes back he tries to get back to a place that's safe and secure his uh uh bedding area now uh during the rut, a, uh, a buck may be quite a ways away from that. But they'll go for that, and they'll go uh, uphill or downhill. They go where they want to go. Uh, a lot of times I've come in, and the hunter said, we've looked everywhere. We we can't find this deer. We've grid searched the whole thing. What about that ridge over there? Well, well, wounded deer won't climb a, a steep slope. Yeah, but the dogs say, he did climb it, and there's the deer at the top, dead. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the deer does what is secure safety place for him. And uh, the only generalization I think that holds pretty true is if a uh, a deer is shot in the uh, uh, intestines or uh, the stomach gut shot, uh, they will get thirsty. They'll dehydrate after a while. And if there's water available, they'll go to that. And they they wait out, and a lot of times we find them dead in the water. That's kind of predictable. But uh, other things, no. I'm just amazed at uh, what uh, deer will do. Uh, Does usually uh, won't go as far. They're closer to their bedding area than a a buck during the rut. But, uh, you know, if you get caught up in these generalizations, a deer is going to go always go downhill. And I've read this in a lot of books. Uh, yeah, they will go downhill if that's that's where they want to go. But a deer goes where he wants to go until he runs out of gas, runs out of blood. And uh, that could be in various places. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to hear that because I think so many of us have been almost trained to just assume some of these generalizations are true. Um you know, I think it's been ingrained in so many over time, but it's interesting. I mean, I think your sample size that you've been able to look at, you know, well over a thousand, you know, animals you've tracked. I think it's pretty clear that if you're not seeing that as a consistent trend, well, it's it's going to be a lot bigger than any of our sample sizes that yeah. we can personally. You got to keep your mind open. Yeah, for sure. I've got a question that's popped up that kind of goes back to something we talked about a little while ago um, when we were talking about determining how long to wait. Um, and I know you said to wait, you know, a pretty decent amount of time, eight hours or more for a paunch, a liver, intestine, et cetera, et cetera. But what, how does rain factor into that determination? Are you going to change things up if there's rain in the forecast or rain happening right now? That, that's a good question. Uh, rain will 
dilute the the blood uh, so that there's nothing that uh, the hunter can see. But the scent is still there, and uh, dogs also, uh, they track uh, uh, other scents that come from the deer, particularly the uh, interdigital scent. Uh, There's an interdigital gland between the cloves of the hoof, uh, kind of high on that uh, slot there. And uh, uh, that is an individual scent, and uh, a dog, when he's trained, will follow that very well. So rain doesn't bother uh, an experienced tracker at all. Unless, you know, if it's uh, three, four inches, okay, <laughs> that's one thing. But, you know, the normal thing, a half inch, uh, one inch, uh, no, the uh, uh, the dog can uh, track uh, just the same. Matter of fact, that's better than dry, windy conditions. You know, early in bow season, uh, it allows dry leaves blowing around on the ground, and uh, the humidity is low. That's a lot tougher than uh, the situation after most rainfalls. So, what though? What if you don't have access to a dog? Would you say that you? Sh- I mean, this is this is the thing I always deal with myself: is do I? Do I head right in because I want to try to take advantage of whatever small amount of blood is available, um, or do you wait a longer period of time because your hope is that you know I'm not going to have a blood trail of any sort, but hopefully he dies or she dies close enough that when I do kind of a body search, I'll be able to find it. Um, sounds like a dog is the best case or the best option, but what if I can't get a hold of a dog? What would you do then? Well, then, uh, you know, when you get to the point beyond uh, fairly easy tracking quit and wait because what you don't want to do in a situation like this is uh, jump the deer out of his bed you know when he's still alive and he takes off without blood that deer is gone now if you got a tracking dog that's not a problem because you can follow that deer out of his bed but uh, uh, generally uh, uh, you know wait I'm not against grid searches within uh, in reason. Usually, uh, this this disrupts scent, but uh, not to an extreme degree. And there you've got a chance of finding a deer like that. You know, it depends if you're hunting in brushy fields. You got to work pretty closely, make a pretty close grid. Grid. If you're uh, uh, out in open hardwoods, you know, roam around and look in the general area. Uh, you can spot a, uh, a deer down, spot his uh, white belly, you know, 100 yards away. Yeah. But, so, I, I, you know, I, th- I think uh, in cases that don't involve broken legs, you're uh, better off waiting once you're sure that the, the deer hasn't gone down, you know, uh, in the area that there was easy tracking with uh, leg hits. The blood uh, comes out through the marrow bone. And if you keep pressure on the deer, he will uh, bleed so that you can eye track him and, and find him. Uh, I've uh, tracked deer like this four miles. No, that's unusual. Uh, wow. But uh, you can usually spot a, a leg hit uh, deer by bone fragments and uh, also by, you know, smears on logs and so forth where the deer has dragged his uh, leg across the across the uh, log yeah interesting uh so you you mentioned this 
question of, or you mentioned grid searching and Dan mentioned it too. And this is another one of the things I've thought about because I, I've got a friend who has a tracking dog that I've, you know, thought about and I usually will take her along on track jobs, you know, even when I know it's going to be an easy job just because we want to give her experience. But I think one of the questions is, you know, lots of times if someone knows that they can get a hold of a tracking dog or something, there's this question of when do I stop trying to find it myself and get a hold of this person with a dog? Like at what point am I screwing things up more than I'm helping them um, by trying to find it myself? Because I know for me at least, I mean, I think a lot of us in this situation, we just want to find our deer now and we, we just want it to happen. And so there's this like this allure of, well, let me just try a little further. Let me just look over this hill or let me just circle this area. Um, but some guys say, well, you do that, you're screwing up your chances of the dog being able to actually find it in the future. So what do you say to that, John? When do you, when is it better for me just to stop and pull out and get a hold of that dog? Well, I would say if you're uh, blood tracking by eye and uh, the deer has not lain down, there's no evidence that the deer is uh, you know, about ready to uh, drop, back back out when uh, eye tracking uh becomes difficult or impossible. Uh, now that's that's not the European theory, but uh, you know in America you try to do things uh, yourself if you can. You know it depends so much on the circumstances. If you're uh, in an area where you think uh, you could do a fairly effective uh, grid search over maybe a, a 200 yard uh, area, you might grid search that, but. Uh, we do find as trackers that when we go into an area that's been grid searched where, uh, you know, the deer center has been tracked up by the hunter, it makes things more difficult. Usually I find I can uh, surmount the difficulties, but uh, that's not the ideal. But uh, uh, as long as you can eye track, uh, there's no need for a dog. You know, I, this whole business of calling the leash tracking dog a blood tracking dog is a mistake. I use the term myself, but uh, they're useful. They become useful when there's uh, no blood to track. How does that process usually work? Are there, I mean, I know that tracking dogs and their handlers um, are kind of becoming much more popular across the country as more and more states legalize it. But I understand there's some different like tracking associations and groups like that across the country that help mm -hmm. set up hunters with a dog. Is that something, you know, is that true? Is there some different people or organizations we can get in touch with to find the right people to help? Yeah, we, you know, we, I'm a founder of two organizations, uh, Deer Search Incorporated in New York state and then United Blood Trackers. You know, we had co-founders. Uh, we uh, we don't provide people with dogs, but we give them uh, assistance and training. And uh, we also um, pub uh, publicize the services that they make available. For instance, in United uh, Blood Trackers, uh, you can go to their website and click on Find a Tracker, and then you'll see the, the uh, states, 35 states in which tracking is... Uh, uh, legal. You click on the state, and you can get a uh, a listing of the trackers in that state uh, and where they're located. You know, in terms of a, a town. Uh, so that's uh, uh, you know they play an important uh, role that way. Deer Search in New York State actually does 
dispatching too. When a hunter calls in and says, "I got, I got a deer I can't find. Uh, I've tried everything," uh, they'll put him in touch with a, uh, a tracking dog uh, in the area where he was hunting. So they they play that role, but you know they they don't get involved in providing the dogs, and uh, you you buy your your dogs kind of on the open market. Is, and then also these organizations have promote the idea of tracking in states where it still sounds like a crazy idea. You know, they they tell interested uh, leaders, well, this is what our experience has been in uh, New York State or Vermont, and, uh, you know, we, we give them uh, some of the correspondence, the uh, text of the bills that have been passed, so that they have an idea of where they're going. Speaking of bills and laws related to this, what kind of laws are typically around the use of tracking dogs? I think you I mean it's not like it's not free for all, right? You can't just go out there with a dog and and go chase after these deer, right? There are some limitations and restrictions in in most states. Oh yeah. Uh, in all but the deep south and uh, in Texas, uh, number one, the dog has to be kept on uh, a leash uh, from 30 to 50 feet. Uh, in some states, you can carry a firearm uh, to put down the deer if it's still alive. In other states, uh, uh, that's not permitted. Most states allow tracking day or night but uh, some restricted to the daytime. It's a very complicated thing, you know. There, there's this set of five different regulations. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think the important thing to realize is that uh, in the uh, northeast and uh, the Midwest, extending pretty far south, the use of dogs in deer hunting was a law, uh, uh, outlawed for good reasons. It was... Uh, you know, it was almost exterminating deer. And now the use of tracking dogs is presented by legislation as an exception. Uh, and the important, most important thing here is the dog is uh, kept at all times on a tracking leash. Okay. Now, what about if, you know, I thought about this too. What if you wanted to try to get your own tracking dog? Is there any specific type of dog that's best or specific things you should look for in a dog if you were trying to get your own, train your own? Oh, boy, that is a question. Uh, <laughs> there are specialized breeds uh, that are used for tracking, and uh, you can buy them uh, in Europe or uh, from certain breeders in the United States, for instance, there is the Bavarian Mountain uh, uh, Bloodhound from Germany, the Hanoverian Bloodhound. What has become very popular is a breed that uh, I started with, uh, the European Wirehair Dachshund, which is quite different from the American Dachshund. They're registered by AKC, but uh, they're higher in the leg, shorter in the back. I have a wiry coat, and they... Uh, you know, they're much more agile and they have much more uh, endurance. The right kind of lab is very good. Not the pet lab or the show lab or the kind of hyper lab that's used in uh, uh, competition, uh, you know, uh, retrieving competitions. But uh, 
I've seen some marvelous labs. And then a breed from Texas is becoming more and more popular now as the uh, the blue lacy. So there, there is quite a number, but uh, and you can't always go by breed labels. I mean, there are duds uh, in all these breed categories, and there are some very good dogs that don't come out of one of these breeds. But usually, your your odds of getting a dog, a talented dog, are better if you stick uh, with a uh, a breed that's got the right temperament uh, and the the right habits for using its nose. And a lot of it goes into training too. There, there's a uh, an opportunity to buy uh, good prospects in the United States. The demand now is very strong. The the demand for tracking dogs is expanding faster than the supply. But I think this is going to settle out. Uh, the wire-haired dachshund that I breed is he's handy because he's a small dog that you can easily to transport. He, he's a good small companion in the house, and uh, he can be very, very uh, talented. But he's certainly not the uh, uh, only breed that can do this. Uh, I would say wire Dachshund does not have a, a bloodhound uh, caliber nose. By the way, there are some American bloodhounds uh, working too, but they, that's a lot of dog. Uh, but, you know, usually uh, even a uh, uh, a dachshund is going to be able to track uh, wounded deer with no visible blood anyway for up to 24 hours. And uh, in most of our hunting in the Northeast and the Midwest, this is long enough. Now you get trophy hunters that, oh, uh, they want that rack. I shot the deer last week, but I don't care about the meat. I just want the uh, uh, that uh, gorgeous set of antlers. There you want... You want uh, uh, American Bloodhound or the Bavarian Mountain Bloodhound or the Hanoverian Bloodhound. Hmm. There's no one perfect breed. I think you've got to find what uh, what suits you uh, uh, you best. So what about, you know, the old adage, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Is that true? Is this the kind of situation where you need to get a puppy to train him or her to do this kind of thing? Or can I take my... Maybe I've had a lab my whole life, and he's six or seven years old, and I want to train him to do this now. Is that possible? Sure. I, I think it depends on whether the lab has been uh, haunted, has learned to use his nose, and uh, you know to uh, uh, re- relate to uh, his handler. I've had uh, the best dog I ever had. I was Clary, and she didn't start until she was four. Uh, but, you know, I had hunted other things with her raccoons, uh, pheasants, and, and so forth. Uh, but uh, to just take a dog that's been a house dog and ask them at five or six to, uh, to track, to learn to stay on the right line, all that, uh, that's uh, reaching out uh, pretty far. I think when you get into eight or nine years old, by the time the dog has learned from practical experience, uh, as well as training what to do, the dog is going to begin to uh, uh, fail because of uh, age. So, uh, you know, I think the ideal thing for most people is to uh, to get a good puppy uh, from a breeder who is into blood tracking and has good blood tracking dog. But uh, you can uh, uh, 
develop uh, other dogs to do this. With the pointing breeds, some of them are marvelous. I've seen marvelous uh, German wire-haired dachshunds and German, German wire-haired pointers, excuse me, the German version of this, which is the Drottar. But so many of them, they, uh, since they've been bred primarily for bird hunting, they'll be high-headed and birdie. Great for wind setting, but they won't get the nose down to work all cold lines. Some do, and I've seen this dogs that were great uh, bird uh, finders, wind sending 50, 60 yards, and could work a cold 24-hour line at the same time. But uh, that's not always the case. Hmm. What uh, What do you think about all this, Dan? As far as the uh, dogs are concerned, I my question is is going back to the actual tracking itself, and I and I hate to go off topic here, but you mentioned something about uh, bumping a deer. You know, you don't. It's sometimes it's it's going to be hard. You, you really don't. You can't tell if a deer is dead or not unless you're looking at it. So, um, if if somebody does dump a deer, uh, bump a deer, is there I mean, is it a lost cause that that deer's gone forever, or is there still a chance that you can recover it from where you bumped it? Yeah, um, usually if you get real, really close to the bedded uh, wounded deer uh, before he jumps up and takes off, uh, he is not going to go very far before he beds again. And uh, you know, uh, you may be able to. Get it. I found usually if you get close to a deer, you jump him once, he goes out 200 yards, he beds again, uh, and then uh, the, the second time you jump him, he uh, goes 100 yards, and then he's finished. That's a, uh, a scenario. And, you know, it depends on the uh, the cover that you're working in, uh, how much blood the, the deer leaves going out of the bed, uh, bed and how far uh, ahead you can see him go. Uh, but uh, when a, uh, a, a deer takes off, really when he's not even in sight and you just find it's a bed with a little bit of blood in it, uh, that's not a very good opportunity to uh, catch up to that deer without a tracking dog. So in that gotcha. case, when you do bump that deer, going back to the wait or don't wait, um, regardless of how long you wait in the front end, now you've bumped a deer I think most of us usually, when we bump a deer, we think, oh, shoot, we just bumped that deer, we better wait. And then we go home or we go back to the truck and wait a couple hours and then try again. I feel like that's the most common response. But in that situation, yeah. you bump the deer, are you are you going to keep pushing it usually? Or how do you how do you think about that circumstance? Well, you know, by the time you've gotten to the point where you've bumped the deer, you probably know how it's wounded. And... Uh, if it's wounded in the uh, uh, the guts, uh, or it's given evidence of being uh, very weak, follow it up. Otherwise, back off. You've always got to uh, think of this problem of the coyotes. You know, it's it's never simple. You know, it'd be nice if you could write a little manual for hunters and five pages of uh, how to find a wounded deer, but. Damn it, I've learned, my dogs have taught me that it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, I wish it was that easy, that it could be summed uh, up. That's what I try things. to deal with in uh, my book, uh, 
dead on. That's written for hunters who uh, don't have access to a dog. What they what can they do to handle and track a deer hit in uh, different places? So is is there anything we haven't touched on on that specific topic? The if I don't have a dog, is there any other big lessons that you've learned that we haven't covered? Well, you know, we just talked about bow hunting. Is that your? Uh, oh, it's a great uh, point. Uh, the focus, uh, uh, or do you want to expand it to gun hunting? No, we definitely do want to talk about the firearm side too. How does that change things? Okay. Well, I think there's one important thing that we haven't mentioned, and I see this is a hunter mistake that's made time and time again when we get calls on it. On a high back shot uh, with a shotgun slug or a rifle bullet, uh, if the deer goes down immediately and stays down, well, you're going to get that deer. But quite often, uh, that uh, bullet has uh, it's hit one of the prongs, spinous processes coming up off the vertebrae, or there's been a shock to the spinal uh, cord uh, within the backbone. The deer goes down, and if it gets up again and takes off, it's gone. We can't catch up with them with a tracking dog. And so many times, uh, hunters, they're so sure that that deer went, was fatally wounded because it went down instantly. Well, if it stays down, that's the case. But if it gets up again, it's gone. And, you know, I've had uh, hunters say, well, I, I hit him good out at 200 yards, and he went right down. I knew I had him. So I went up to the, uh, uh, the house to... Uh, get my uh, ATV and have a cup of coffee. And then when I went down there, he wasn't uh, there anymore. Come find him. And, uh, you know, I've learned not to take those calls uh, because it just uh, uh, it doesn't work. If the deer shows any signs of getting ready to get up again, you put another shot in him. I think that's the most common uh, error I see gun uh, hunters make. All right, now, before we move on to my next question for John, we need to pause briefly for a word from the sponsors of this episode of the podcast, Carbon Express Arrows. And when it comes to hunting arrows, I think one of the greatest challenges that the average bow hunter has is trying to wade through all the different options available and figure out exactly what kind of arrow and setup is best for his or her hunting application. So with us today is Carbon Express's Alex Tate to help us understand exactly how to pick the right arrow for your situation. So... So the two main groups of hunters, and if you don't agree with this, and let me know. But in in our heads here, um, it's going to be whitetail specifically. You know, that's number one, and in, in anywhere. Um, and then two is going to be out west elk hunting or out west um, mule deer hunting, and, and that's all kind of the same. A little bit bigger size animals, a um, little bit longer yardages, a lot less woods. So the differences between those two, and, and the difference between your arrow selection. Um, for a whitetail hunt, I would always recommend um, a, a heavy arrow, specifically because in most whitetail situations and, and habitats, you're going to get a 30-yard shot or less. So, so speed really does not matter. Um, on top of that, today's bows are so efficient that, that you really want weight these days, in, in my opinion and in a lot of people's opinions, um, especially at this company. So that would be where I'd push people for whitetails. So like our reds, our, um, 
our mayhem, stuff like that. It's very, very heavy pile drivers for the people who aren't ever going to see over a 30 yard shot. A pile driver is just a phenomenal arrow because it's extremely heavy and you don't need anything else. You're shooting 30 yards max and you're wanting to punch through that animal as fast and efficiently as possible. But when you go out west, um, you're dealing with 70 yard shots. You're dealing with no trees and with no trees um, comes a lot of wind. So you have to start um, factoring in that as well. And with that becomes you're going to be looking for like a, a smaller diameter. So like our pile driver pass through extreme um, is a great option. 203 inner diameter, extremely heavy. So it helps cut through that wind. A light arrow that is small diameter will only do so much for you because it's still light. It's going to drift. Um, so th those would be my two main differences between those. And then also going out west um, on those longer shots, the more FOC you can get, the better. So a weight forward arrow or a um, triple spined arrow with 125 grains up front can really pay dividends when you start getting past 40, 50 yards. So there you go. And if you'd like to learn more about any of the arrows that Alex mentioned, you can visit carbonexpressarrows.com. And now back to the show. Are there any other differences from the other tracking kind of best practices we talked about or the times to wait, you know, that we talked about when it came to bow hunting, is there any other differences when it comes to using a firearm? Do you wait less or longer after gunshot at all? I don't think there are any clear differences. You know, the wound that's made is different. A, uh, uh, an arrow cuts uh, in a specific area. If it hits a vein or whatever, you know, the results are going to occur right away with a... Uh, a rifle bullet, uh, you have uh, shock around the, the uh, passage of the bullet. You have tissue damage uh, around the uh, passage of the bullet. Uh, and uh, you're dealing with a, a damage zone that's actually broader uh, than uh, uh, when you shoot with a broadhead. Another thing I'll throw in here, you may want to edit this out, is... Uh, we get a lot of calls from people that are using mechanical broadheads. And uh, I know when a mechanical broadhead uh, works, uh, it's awesome. But there are so many cases uh, where they give inadequate penetration. Maybe they hit a rib. Uh, I think a lot of times uh, hunters will be shooting with a, uh, a mechanical, I won't mention uh, brand names, but uh, they're tempted to use a, uh, a light arrow and a light uh, uh, poundage bow. And, you know, they get, uh, when they're shooting targets, they get uh, beautiful flat uh, trajectories. But they don't have enough uh, energy in that uh, uh, arrow when it strikes the deer to get all the way through. And sometimes you don't get any exit wound, but you still got a killing wound. But a lot of times, uh, you know, it's four inches penetration. Almost anybody that tracks a lot says, I, I would never use a mechanical. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the uh, general hunting public doesn't see it the same way. You know, we just see all the cases where the mechanical uh, doesn't work. No, that's good now to we know. When you say doesn't work, I'm a kind of a gear nut. What uh, 
What do you mean by doesn't work? You mean it's not opening like it's supposed to open or the broadhead itself is damaged and it's not uh, living up to its potential? It loses uh, its energy, its kinetic energy. Right. Uh, You know, there's more resistance when those uh, blades open, particularly if they hit a rib or something like that. And uh, so you don't get the uh, penetration. Then when the arrow stops, uh, the, the blades float. They don't keep on cutting as they would in a, uh, a standard broadhead where, you know, with the muscle movement of the uh, animal, it would continue uh, cutting back and forth. So uh, I think uh, this is it, inadequate uh, penetration. I don't see too many cases where they don't open, but I think if you're going to use a mechanical, you want to use a high poundage bow, uh, and uh, heavier arrows, you, you know, not what you would uh, use in a, uh, a tournament. Uh, that, that brings up another thing, too. I think the 3D tournaments show the lethal kill zone, uh, the deer target, uh, in a much too optimistic way. <laughs> uh, you know, it, uh, you they make it look like if you hit the deer four inches below the top line, uh, that's going to kill them good. And uh, the the real kill zone uh, for deer, you know, heart and lungs, is going to be lower than anything you'll see with the, the current 3D uh, tournament uh, targets. I think that, uh, you know, uh, I'm all for cultivating uh, the art of shooting accurately, but I think in this respect, uh, the competition leads to an unrealistic uh, viewpoint of uh, uh, what the kill zone is in a real live deer. That's good to know. So it sounds like it's better to air a little bit low than a little bit high, typically. It also, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And this is especially true with uh, black bear. Now this year uh, in the Northeast, we've got a, a heavy black bear kill. And most of the time, well, the uh, hunters, you know, they'll, they'll shoot from the middle of the chest and they're a little bit high and uh, they're just going through muscle. They're not getting into the, uh, the very low heart-lung uh, area of a black bear. Interesting. I, I don't know, Dan. Do you have any other questions on this topic? No, not really. I think... Uh... He's provided us with a, a lot of information today. Yeah, this is this has been interesting, especially some of the insights you know that, that go counter to some of the the generally held knowledge that's kind of anecdotally mm-hmm. been passed down for decades. Yep. Um, that's that's particularly interesting. I think you know, big take home mess take home message for me is to not be afraid to go after these deer that we know for sure have been hit well. I think that makes sense to go after them, but then also to to kind of not be afraid to hold off when it's a little bit questionable in the right situations. Um, Do you have any final thoughts you'd want to leave or any other big mistakes, John, that you think that most people are making in the situation that we still need to cover? Well, I think that uh, a lot of hunters still haven't adjusted to this new age of the coyotes. And uh, what was good advice for grandpa is not good advice anymore. So that's uh, 
uh, one thing. I, I think uh, for the whole wounded deer question, you can't make a just a big generalization about the whole thing. You've got to break it down uh, into uh, uh, the various situations depending on the uh, anatomy of the deer. And it pays to uh, look at a diagram of deer anatomy so that you can uh, recognize situations when they arise. Yeah, definitely. So I guess, so I guess speaking of that then, what resources would you recommend to, to better understand this type of scenario? And I'd love to hear about your books or any other places people can go online to learn more about your resources or anything else you recommend. Well, uh, I think uh, my uh, book for hunters that aren't working with dogs uh, dead on is probably the most up-to-date because the other uh, – Writers have not had this experience of working with uh, dogs that uh, tell us what uh, deer actually do. So that book, Dead On, uh, which we sell off our website, BornToTrack.com, is, I think, uh, uh, useful. There's a lot of detail. It's a shorter book. You know, I think it's 90 pages, but uh, I want to see this knowledge that the dogs have given us more widespread, and uh, I'm sure other people are going to pick it up and develop it. But right now, uh, I don't think that there there's enough that's been uh, published or videos that have been uh, published. We've got, there's a lot to be done here, and uh, it'll be uh, uh, other people who do it. I'm actually now I'm 81, so my uh, tracking day uh, days in the woods ended when I was 80. Uh, but I want other people to pick this up and write more. And what, what you're doing on this program here of publicizing uh, this new knowledge, I think, is tremendously valuable. Well, hey, we we appreciate you sharing that expertise and experience, John. And that website, I believe you said, was borntotrack.com. Is that correct? Yeah, with uh, there are hyphens between born and born hyphen t o hyphen t-r-a-c-k dot com and you'll see that you can see reviews about it uh, the uh, the tracking dog book has sold actually more than uh, dead on but I think that uh, dead on has a lot of potential for people who don't want to uh, get involved in tracking dogs and that's not for everybody uh, tracking dogs are good for the person who's got the right time and temperament for doing it but uh it's not that's not going to appeal to everybody yeah and there's no point in having a tracking dog if he's not well trained and experienced you just can't take your tv watching uh pooch off a uh, uh couch and think you're going to do very much with him <laughs> yeah i wish i wish it was that easy well um <laughs> John, we'll make sure to link to that website. So if anybody is interested in in write, reading either one of those books or checking out anything else about what John has been doing, uh, we'll yeah. make sure to have a link. And to my that. Uh, uh, my number is in there, and uh, I like to talk to people about uh, questions they may have or give them more advice. Excellent. I, I spend my my other life as a teacher, so that's communicating uh, information is something I really like to do. 
Well, I definitely think you've done that today, John. You've helped a lot of people out, us included. So thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Okay. Well, I certainly enjoyed it too. Thank you for the opportunity. Of course. And there you have it. A few quick updates before we go, though. As always, a big thank you to our partners who help make this podcast possible. So thanks to Sika Gear, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Yeti Coolers, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And thank you to all of you who have gone out and supported these companies or thank them for their work with Wired to Hunt. You know, I'm getting more and more messages about this kind of thing happening, and it's really an unbelievable help for this podcast and for the Wired to Hunt website. You know, when our partners hear about the impact that this show and Wired to Hunt is having, it's a huge eye-opener for them. And that kind of thing is what it's going to take to keep this show going. So just, just huge thanks for that. Also, thank you, of course, for tuning in today. For hearing us out talking about our own hunts and for joining us to hear what john had to share as well i hope you learned a thing or two that's going to help you on your next track job and of course i hope you also get an opportunity to enjoy a track job soon so until next time i hope you'll stay wired to hunt hey everybody knows weber grills i've been using weber grills my whole life and check it out they got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full, great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.